I am the way and the truth and the life. Please be seated. One quick note before I begin. This morning, especially earlier at our 9 a.m. Abundant Table service, we are celebrating the gift and leadership of youth in our cathedral community. And because of that, our youth group challenge gave me a list of, of Gen Z words and challenged me to, to, to slip as many of them into the sermon as I possibly could. And so... If you be aware, you might hear words and you're not terribly sure what they mean, please rest assured, I don't know what they mean either. <laughs> there is a reason why Phyllis Tickle was the right person, the perfect person to write The Great Emergence about a decade ago, about what she called the 500-year yard sale. When the church takes a look at a garage filled with things that it assumed were forever things and begins to take stock of, of what, what really is enduring and what things we can begin to let go. She was the right person to write this. And not only because she was a brilliant scholar and writer and journalist of religion, she was the perfect person to write it because she was a deeply, deeply faithful woman who also understood some of the tender places of our faith. Thinking of other times of change, she mentioned Galileo's discovery that the earth was not the center of the universe. She knew that not only did this mean reorienting the known world, but that for many it would actually be a crisis of faith. Because suddenly, those who had thought of earth as the center of existence, who until then had imagined, envisioned he heaven quite literally as a place just beyond the clouds, suddenly they had to think very differently and had to begin to see the world very differently, which is not easy for anybody at any time period. And we might be tempted to say, oh, well, well, they just weren't as advanced in their thinking as we are. But Phyllis Tickle, as a person of faith, knew, she understood it. This was actually heartbreaking. Because they now asked, wait, wait a minute, if heaven isn't up there, how and where will I see my loved ones again after I die? And then, using her words, where then will I meet my Lord? Where will I meet my Lord? That way of seeing eternity, the afterlife, heaven, and perhaps even hell, it wasn't just about what happened to them after death. This changed their whole lives. And it's true for us, too. The way that you understand the eternal, the way you think about what happens to our souls after this life ends, will shape how you live today. And quite frankly, how you build the world in the here and now. Resurrection, reincarnation, Sheol, Valhalla, purgatory, which to Episcopalians is a bit sus. We don't actually believe in it. 
heaven with angels flying around and stoplights that never turn red. Hell with devils and pitchforks and pointy tails. Whatever you believe about what's coming next will inevitably shape how you live today. And I would argue that inevitably you will create some reflection of that eternal imagination by how you live. If you believe in a judgmental, exclusive, capricious God who uses eternity solely as leverage to make you behave, well, guess what? You are certain to create some kind of hell for other people, and quite possibly yourself as well. It's not hard to see how that happens. From racism and misogyny and homophobia to voter suppression, from violence to warfare, most human power grabs are rooted in a judgmental, exclusive worldview that starts with who we assume is fast-tracked to heaven, which, curiously enough, is always us. It's kind of quirky when you think about it. But if the God we worship and the eternity that is our hope is loving and expansive with a heart to draw all souls in, then we are going to live that way too. If that is our way and our truth and our life, then guess what? We have the chance to create a little bit of heaven for those who are around us, right here in the living present. Now, the gospel passage from this morning comes from what we call John's farewell discourse. When Jesus spills the tea for his disciples about what this is all about, including what is going to happen to them after he is gone. It, it, it is a loving moment. It's a fond farewell. When Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. When I'm gone, I'm not going to ghost you. This resurrected life includes you as well. You see, in the early days of the church, when this was written, those believers were beginning to see things happening. Jesus had returned and ascended, but folks were still living and dying as they had before. And so they had those same very normal questions. Now that Jesus has been raised, what about the rest of us? Will we see our loved ones? I know each and every one of you has asked that question at some time in your life. Will we get to join Jesus in the land of promise? How they answered that question. Not just with an enthusiastic yes, but also how they said yes had everything to do with how they lived their lives. Jesus' answer was this. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. So already we hear the language, not of judgment or exclusion or chosenness, 
but of abundance and ample space and warm hospitality. And then he says, you already know the way. There's no secret handshakes. There is no special knowledge. There is not a list of specific tasks that you must complete because you are God's beloved, because you are my beloved. You you already know the way to this eternal home. But then Thomas, Thomas being Thomas, being like any one of us, says, Bruh, how do we know the way? Show us the map. Give us us an answer. He wanted the quick answer. They were hoping he would show a little riz and flash some quick directions so they could get both the right feels and the satisfaction that they were standing the right guy. There were a whole lot of Gen Z words in that line. So don't tax yourself trying to understand what it means. You're just going to hurt your brain. I really scored a lot on the bingo card with that one at 9 a.m. Jesus promised them a companionship that bridged this life and the next. And then he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a destination that is above the clouds or high in the mountains or sitting right up there on top of that roof but a path, a path that winds through this life and through the next, one that arcs through our prayers and our relationship and our worship and our love of neighbor and our joy and our grief and our death and our resurrection. Jesus is a way of knowing. A heart reality that sees the openness and love of God all around us. Jesus is life. A life of integration and grace that weaves together all facets of our lived and hoped for realities into a tapestry, one single tapestry of love and compassion, and one that is not by any means ripped apart by death. Jesus was teaching that heaven and love are real, and that the path that we walk to heaven is actually the same path that we walk to the mailbox. It's how we live and how we love in this life and how we create heaven for those all around us. I am the way and the truth and the life. And then Jesus goes on and and he says something that, that that we are rightly challenged by in our diverse pluralistic world and where we see value in that. Where he then says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This has been understood by many to envision heaven as a place of worthiness and exclusion. And we have so often mapped our whole view of the world around this very narrow cosmic view. So what are we to make of it? Because it it is here. 
what do we do with it? Well, first, we see it in context. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And John, this is the Gospel of John, was writing to the Christians of the first century, just as I am preaching to a community of Christians and those seeking to learn more. To be a Christian is to anchor our faith not only on a number of teachings, not only on a commitment to be real nice to each other, a good start, but not the whole gospel, but rather to anchor our faith on, uh, we're anchoring our faith not only on that, but on the companionship and person of Jesus himself. And when we think about that, and when we think about the expansive welcome that Jesus offers, it seems almost odd for Jesus to then offer this long pastoral discourse on presence and pathways and living faithfully, and then turn to the camera and say, remember kids, this only counts if you are on my team. It doesn't quite fit. And the only way it seems to make sense is if we can lift that challenging phrase out of the text, out of its context, and then rebuild the kingdom of God around this disconnected fragment. When only a breath before Jesus had said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. And then if we simply look at the lived reality of exclusion, where, which 99% of the time does nothing but create hell on earth for somebody, then we find ourselves listening more closely to the way, the truth, and the life, rather than a narrow relationship with Jesus. We give our hearts to Jesus. But who is Jesus to us? Is Jesus the goat or the lamb? Is Jesus the greatest of all time, therefore requiring that we wear the t-shirt? Or is he the incarnation of sacrificial love? Because I do believe that claim. That there is no way to God or to heaven or to nirvana or inner peace without incarnate sacrificial, self-emptying love. There simply isn't. And that is exactly who Jesus is. That is Jesus' particular and unique gift to the world. Access to the eternal in the here and now through love, through self-emptying love, through the person and body of Jesus, and through the promise of resurrection and reunion in the world to come. That gift comes to us, not from an answer book, or from a tribal identity, or a worthiness test, but simply through the companionship and presence of Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life, whose promise binds us to heaven, and whose presence creates heaven on earth.